millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Uh, This week it's going to be one of our review weeks. Um, I have a mountain of books to review. So we're going to try to do this over a series of podcasts. Um, I've got kind of a backlog from my good buddies at IB Tourists. And the first book that I'm going to look at this week is Battles for Freedom, uh, The Uses and Abuses of American History by Eric Foner, the brilliant historian of the Civil War uh, and Reconstruction Era. And there are a collection of his essays from, from the Nation magazine, um, which if you are interested in the kind of um, American uh, liberal discourse for, throughout the 20th century, subscribing to the Nation, you, you can't do much better than that. Um, they have a brilliant archive of uh, everything dating back to about 1905 or so. Um, Anyway, these are essays that he's written since 1977, and they cover a broad range of issues um, relating to uh, the Constitution, uh, civil liberties, um, the understanding of the American past, and the ways in which um, the past has been uh, subverted and used. So we're going to dip into it in a moment and look at some of the, some of the, the ideas that he's been uh, discussing. But in general, these kinds of titles I really like. A few other uh, kind of essay collections... Um, you can find the uh, kind of a, a historian's work, particularly somebody as uh, kind of prolific and as uh, important a, a writer as Eric Foner. Um, you can find sort of uh, broader aspects to their, their writing. Um, the two titles that I, I would recommend if you were wanting to, to look at um, historian stroke essayists well, this is the virgin to the realm of public intellectual, uh, would be Tony Judd's um, books Reappraisals and When the Facts Change, his um, uh, his essays for various titles such as the uh, London Review of Books and the New York Review of Books. Uh, anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get into Battles for Freedom. The essay that I particularly enjoy in this is called Romance of The Romance of the Market. And I like it because it's written on December the 24th, 1990, and recounts Eric Foner's um, sojourn in Russia, where he was 
uh, teaching at the Moscow State University. And it really captures um, a particular historical moment at the end of the Cold War, where it was assumed, um, if you read Fukuyama and all that, that um, the, the kind of the neocon vision of the world had triumphed that uh, markets and liberal democracies would now spread around the world uh, at an increasing pace, and that the, the great ideological struggles of the 20th century were over, fascism was dead and buried, communism was dead and buried, and the, um, the, a, a marketized vision of the world um, would, uh, would uh, proliferate. He writes, For four months last spring, I taught American history at Moscow State University and, with my wife and two-year-old daughter, braved the ever-increasing difficulties of daily life in the city. Over the years, many visitors to the Soviet Union have arrived with a fully formed mental image and have seen what they came to see. This was not our experience. We came to Moscow expecting to find a society revelling in newfound intellectual openness and engaging in an exciting debate over its future. We soon discovered, however, that the earlier euphoria of Glasnost had faded. Now the public mood is one of cynicism about the past present, uh, and present, coupled with a deep pessimism about the future. Instead of a spirited, multi-sided discussion of the country's economic and political restructuring, we find a political situation oddly reminiscent of America's. Genuine freedom of speech, but little real difference in opinion in public discussion. He goes on to point out that um, in the entirety of Russian media in 1990, uh, praise of the free market was an unquestioned given. Um, he says that um, the direction of change was not up for discussion, only the pace. And he makes an interesting parallel with John Reed's observations in Russia in 1917, um, uh, where, in his writing, uh, his book, Ten Days That Shook the World, which, if you're interested, there is a podcast on uh, way back. I did it last year sometime. Um He's, he adds, ironically, the romance of the market arises as much from the success of Soviet socialism as from its all too apparent failures. Karl Marx expected capitalism to give birth to its grave digger, an exploited class conscious proletariat. In fact, socialism has sown its own seeds of discontent by wrenching the USSR as trem at tremendous cost from backwardness to modernity and by creating almost from nothing a vast class of professionals, intellectuals, and white collar workers. Exactly the kinds of people um, who eventually would find um, market ideologies rather attractive. Much of what he says in the article is, is very prescient. Um, he says that at first glance, the romance of the market seems to rest on an admixture of naivety and wishful thinking. The current obsession with uncovering the Soviet Union's history. Uh, hidden history, coexists with a remarkable historical amnesia or ignorance regarding the West. The radicals assume that the Western standard of living had arisen naturally from the function of capitalism. They condemn the very union movement and popular struggles that helped to create today's high income levels in mass consumption societies. So the ability to kind of peer into um, the thinking of uh, Russian economic and political radicals in 1990 um, who were, embraced market fundamentalism uh, in a way that um, Margaret Thatcher uh, would, well, did admire immensely and to be able to understand how those conceptions of um, what the West was like 
were shaped by the experience of Soviet history is a real feat uh, and, and helps us to intellectually navigate why it is the decisions that are taken um, from the throughout the 1990s um, manifest as they do. The following year, um, Eric Foner um, and John Wiener um, wrote uh, an article, Fighting for the West, um, based on a, uh, an exhibition at the Smithsonian Institute, um, the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American Art, um, Images of the Frontier, 1820-1920. This is a, a particularly controversial um, controversial uh, exhibition. Not that it should have been really, um, there's very little that should actually be controversial about the, the way, uh, about, about the images uh, that are, are portrayed. But it was, um, it is a kind of a, perhaps a, an interesting moment in America's ongoing culture wars about its past, um, particularly about the um, painful issue of race. The exhibition showed artwork uh, which uh, portrayed images of uh, American expansion uh, from um, ocean to ocean, uh, manifest destiny throughout the 19th century. Some of it um, clearly showed um, propagandist uh, ideas about um, racial um, a racial superiority of white European settlers to the Native American peoples, and uh, Eric Foner calls the uh, fate of the uh, American pe the Native American peoples, um, an American genocide, which undoubtedly you could be, you could make that case. He's more interested um, with the storm of um, outrage that comes from the the right wing media um, and Republican politicians at the time, um, and the, the rallying cry of uh, political correctness. Uh, political correctness, uh, a term really kind of invented by various right-wing think tanks to uh, present um, anything that might perhaps be kind of progressive or uh, revisionist in its outlook as a sinister conspiracy to either brainwash the nation or to ban free speech, uh, particularly um, if it's free speech which tramples on the rights of um, ethnic minorities, women or gay and lesbian people. So he says, Critics accusing this show of being PC have once again wrapped themselves in the mantle of intellectual liberalism while accusing their opponents of political indoctrination and thought control. But, as the, at the Smithsonian, as on most college campuses, abuses inspired by political correctness remain a minor problem. Their significance is dwarfed by the myriad real crises in university and cultural life, among them dwindling public funds, rising corporate influence, the fragmentation of scholarship and widespread illiteracy. Political correctness ranks with the swine flu epidemic um, as molehills transformed into mountains by gullible media. Now, as much of Eric Foner's uh, um, journalism um, centres round the uses and abuses um, of the uh, American past. Um, he's particularly sharp in showing how um, presentations, uh, artistic representations of the West, this deeply mythologized period in American time, which is more about um, genocide than it is about cowboys and Indians, to be honest.
are used to support a, kind of a, a dominant idea of um, expansion, settlement, and uh, the growth of uh, American civilization. And whilst, in, a, in, in essence, that is uh, unquestionably true, um, that wagons did roll westwards, the plains were settled, farms were built, the people who inhabited those lands are, by and large, erased from, uh, from the historical record. And public art is a very important way to do it. And he also points out how the, the past is for all of us, but particularly in, in this instance, um, a realm of the imagined. He says that the West has always existed, existed um, in the imagination as much as in the reality is the theme of the Smithsonian show. The Washington Post declared it curious that the art and the arguments of the show's organisers tend to operate at cross-purposes, but that is precisely the show's message. The 19th and early 20th century paintings on display celebrated the conquest of the West. The accompanying wall labels challenge viewers not to take the paintings at face value, but to reinterpret them in terms of what historians have come to understand about Western expansion. The show emphasises that artists painted the West to conform to the expectations of Easterners, especially wealthy patrons of the arts and railroad companies interested in promoting Western settlement and tourism. Easterners wanted to see a West more honest and clean, more stirring and uplifting than their own troubled region, suffering in the late 19th century from periodic depressions and violent class conflict. The paintings promised settlers a peaceful journey to fertile lands, and the artists paid special attention to the triumphs of engineering, railroads, bridges, etc. The wall texts take note of what the paintings left out, abandoned homesteads, mining towns that went bust, social conflict and environmental damage. Now I'd urge you to read um, Phoners of the Work, uh, particularly his biography of Lincoln um, and his book Reconstruction, The Unfinished Revolution. Um, he is um, a, a brilliant writer, historian and intellectual and fearlessly honest in trying to overturn these uh, inconvenient truths um, about the American past, which obviously every country has their own inconvenient truths, uh, which um, they, their popular culture um, and uh, government invariably uh, tends to, to massage and uh, make, make more attractive. So that's the first book review um, in a series of several that are coming. Battles for Freedom, The Uses and Abuses of American History by Eric Foner. And you can get that from IB Tourist. Please, if you're buying this, um, make sure that you try to get to an independent bookshop to order it and buy it. Those guys absolutely need your help. Um, or a, a physical bookshop if you can. Order it directly from the publisher or find a an online book retailer that um, ha, you know pays their employees and behaves generally kind of ethically and, and that kind of thing. Um, because we live in an, uh, a kind of an ecosystem, really. If publishers um, and writers don't get paid, stuff like this don't get made, um, and um, drivel will drivel will triumph, and we've got to stop that. Anyway, thanks very much for listening to this. If you can, go to the uh, Explaining History um, podcast on iTunes, 
give us a vote, make it a good one, give us a review. Uh, we really, really, really depend on as many reviews as possible to keep the podcast going. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.